0: 1 Corinthians 15, we have reached verse 29. Paul, in this chapter, has begun to discuss resurrection with this church because in verse 12 we learn, he says that there are some among you that say there is no resurrection of the dead. So Paul is addressing that. He began by showing that God, through revelation to him personally, through the scriptures, and through all the eyewitnesses, had only... Given one apostolic message, which again he says in 12, now if Christ is preached to you that he's been raised from the dead, and the only apostolic message included Christ being raised from the dead, how are some of you saying that there is no resurrection? And he went into then what happens if there is no resurrection? If there's no resurrection, God then is a liar. The apostles are liars. He says the people who have died are dead in their sins. He says, those that we love who have passed on, they're not actually being risen from the dead. We're miserable people. And he began to show that's not true. Christ is risen. And then God gives wisdom to Paul, and he has this wonderful view literally all the way down to the end of the ages where he says Christ is resurrected. Then every man in their order until Christ comes and he takes the kingdom and puts every enemy into subjection even death and then hands the kingdom back up to his father and he's he brings us to this incredible place and then we get to a weird place in verse 29 so he's in the middle of that argument he's continuing it he says in verse 29 otherwise what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all why then are they baptized for the dead and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So, thanks Paul. This, this weird kind of, he, he's still continuing on the argument. I think that's important for us to see here. Verse 29 in, in all honesty, has, it's one of the verses in the Bible that has more interpretations than just about any section in the Bible. There's a lot of guys who just aren't sure exactly what Paul is saying. The context is clear. First, I think what we can see is Paul is going back to the ifs. So notice he says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why do we say they're baptized for the dead? Because earlier from verse 12 down, he says, if there is no resurrection, if Christ is not risen. He he assumes this position if there is no resurrection. So he's picking back up those arguments. He's, He's assuming that position again, if there is no resurrection. The other thing that is clear here is there's a they and we contrast. So he says in 29, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? Then in verse 30, he ends up saying, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? And he begins to talk about his Christian life under threat because of his witness of Christ. So the they we contrast here shows the they is still the people who are assuming or teaching that there is no resurrection. The people that are in that position, that's the they. The we is those who are living that truth out. So... Uh, The most, I'm going to tell you a couple things and then take my shot and then leave. So (laughs) the most common interpretation here is that this was some type of ritual or custom that we don't know anything about. Being baptized for the dead was they were doing something weird with baptism at Corinth. We're not sure what it was. And Paul is just pulling out that example to say, whatever this weird thing was, Why would you even do it if nobody's resurrected? The problems with that are a couple. Number one, Paul never speaks about baptism as if it's not baptism, the true biblical version of that. Number two, it's really hard to see Paul address one of the most essential things in the Christian church, baptism, used in a wrong way and assume he gives no correction in regard to that, where... He talks about what they're doing with communion, and he gives a lot of correction in regard to that. The third problem is we don't actually have any historical or biblical evidence of a weird custom like that. So it's the thing that people guess the most, but it still has a lot of issues. Another common interpretation is Paul speaking when he, when he says, What will they do who are baptized for the dead? He's talking about other believers who take the place of a believer who died or was martyred because he's going to talk about the difficulty in the Christian life that he is facing and others are facing. And they're kind of, it's like a line of believers, right? One goes down, who's stepping into that place? They're baptized as a witness for Christ and then stepping into the place of that martyr who gave their life for the Lord. Uh, Again, that tends to bring up some problems. Paul never uses baptism that way in relation to another believer. Believers wouldn't be spoken of as dead. They're always spoken of as sleeping, which he has been doing this whole chapter. And being baptized for other believers really doesn't make sense. So I haven't helped you with anything at this point. Um, (laughs) I'm just saying there's problems. I'm going to give you my own. I'm just saying that. There's reasons I don't agree with what a lot of other people say here. I'm just going to give you my shot here. My interpretation is a little bit simpler. If you don't like it, that's fine. A lot of people wouldn't. So, what I think Paul is saying is this. When Paul says, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? He's simply saying, why should anybody be baptized in the name of a dead man, aka Christ Jesus? Right? That's, that's what was happening. He has assumed since verse 16 if the dead do not rise then christ is not risen so the point the whole point of baptism biblical baptism is you are identifying yourself with the death of christ and the life of christ paul says in romans you come out and then walk in newness of life so he's simply saying to them why should anybody be baptized for the dead like what's the whole point of baptism then Why would any Christian be baptized at all? If Christ isn't risen, you're baptized for the dead at that point. To me, that fits the context. It keeps baptism as biblical baptism, and it leads naturally into the application that follows. So there's that. Verse 30. This is a little clearer. He says, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Paul's life. We, talking about himself, no doubt other believers, those that believe that Christ is risen, no doubt the apostles in chapter 4, verses 6 through about 13, he spoke about himself and the other apostles and the difficulty that they faced. He says, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ our Lord, I die daily. Well, it's kind of a strange sentence, but Paul's saying, hey, my life is one and I, I boast, it's the work of Jesus Christ and the Lord. He's worked in your lives. I boast that I have to die daily for the cause of Christ. He had to die to himself. He constantly put his life on the line to serve the Lord. And he says, not only that, in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. So Paul's saying, if there's no resurrection, why am I doing this? Why are we doing this? Why are the apostles living on the verge of death? Why are we constantly in this position? I think it's, it's again, hard for us to imagine. We read some of what Paul went through, and it's incredible. But he, he literally was under constant personal danger. He, was, he went into multiple cities, witnessed the work of Christ, saw churches raised up, and then got driven out by mobs. There are places he wanted to stay. He couldn't stay. Like just imagine if that happened to us once. Right? You lived in Philadelphia area, and then you don't anymore because people wanted to beat you up and kill you. So you had to leave, and you went to another city, and the same thing happened to you again. And then the same thing happened to you again, right? This is Paul's life. We just take it for granted what this guy went through. He, he was under constant pressure, not to mention all the other things that kind of happened to him. He's like, what is, the, what is the point of that? Uh, and he references, he says as well in verse 32, he says, if the, In the manner of men I have fought with beasts at, at Ephesus, what advantage is that to me? Paul brings up some point of battle that he had in Ephesus. Uh, we don't know exactly what it was. Apparently, the Corinthians were aware of this. He says, in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts. Some people wonder, was Paul literally thrown to beasts in in some type of Colosseum, which would happen to Christians? It seems unlikely. Uh, As a Roman citizen, that wasn't likely to happen to Paul, although there were times where they didn't care he was a Roman citizen. They were just going to beat him anyway. People didn't like Paul. So is conceivable, but it's not really likely. We also, probably the best biblical reason is in 2 Corinthians 11, where we have that infamous list where Paul lays out all the things that happened to him. He doesn't mention that in there, which seems like he would have. So uh, what it seems like Paul is saying is, he says, I thought with men that way, men like beasts. And in Ephesus, he caused a riot. There was all types of people that acted beastly toward Paul. Now, he himself was like that. He had incredible patience with people. He knew God could save people like that. But he says, like, what was the point? That when there's a ride in Ephesus, he wanted to go right back into the middle of it and then hold him out. And Paul says, but what? why would I do any of that? If there's no resurrection. Why would I step into any of these things? What is the point? What is the advantage? And when Hebrews 11 goes through all those Believers who died in faith expressed faith in all these various ways. It says they were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection of whom the world was not worthy. If that's not true, why, why go through any of that? And Paul says, instead, he takes up a saying of their day. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, then we only have this life to live for. And and so we should get everything we possibly can out of this life. And that's how many people are living in our day and age and in America. Because this is all they got. So they try to squeeze everything they possibly can out of this life. And if this is all you have, then that's what makes sense. Eat, drink, because tomorrow you die. Fulfill yourself, but... If you add eternity into the picture, now that changes everything. If you add resurrection into the picture, that changes everything. If heaven and hell come into the picture, that changes everything. Eternity, this truth, it changes the whole thing. But Paul says, we don't have that. What are we doing? Then he brings in the application here kind of wrapping up this section, he says, do not be deceived in 33. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. Paul Paul always brings in application after he lays out doctrine. Belief, Warren Wearsby says, determines behavior. If we believe something, it will affect our lives. If I said there's a tiger in the center aisle and believed it, it would affect the way everyone would act. That that is a, a fact of life. And what Paul wants to say here is to them: don't be deceived. He, you could translate this: stop allowing yourselves to be misled. Paul knows a deceitful lie is going to precede a wicked lifestyle. The deceitful lie that there is no resurrection is going to precede. Bad behavior. This bad doctrine is going to cause bad lifestyles. Don't be misled, he says to them. Don't be tricked by this because it is going to have an effect on the way that you live. That lie that gets you first will then lead you into a certain type of lifestyle. And he adds in their evil company corrupts good habits which is a saying that is essentially true in every day and age. Certainly it's true in our day and age. I don't know if there could ever been a clearer context of this, certainly with the internet and the influence that's on there, that you don't even have to be a Christian person. Just any secular study of the effects of people who are constantly on the internet and social media, everything raises. (laughs) Suicide, depression, loneliness, Every single stat is negative because when sinful, the social media and the internet, these are just expressions of humanity. And you know what humanity is? Sinful. So you just have more and more easily accessible sinful expressions of humanity. And that's why very little of it can be used for God's purposes because very little human lives are lived for God's glory. And what we see here is there's a corruption of good habits, good lifestyle, through evil company. We have the ability to choose the influences around us. Most of us choose that. There are places where we can, but most of us in our life, we choose our company. And sometimes we're like, well, if, I don't, if I'm not with them, I'm alone. Yeah, but you choose that then. We each get to pick where we're going to go. And we go to what we want. In Acts, the Bible says about the apostles, when they were let go, they went to their own companions. They went to their people. It was those that were following Christ. It was those that were living for him. Who are the godliest people in your life? Do you try to be around them? Like, I don't know any godly people. Well, where do godly people go? Right? Some people are like, I want to meet like a godly guy or a godly girl. What do you, where do you think you're going to find them? At the club? <laughs> or the bar? Right? Do you want the type of guy or girl that would go to a prayer meeting? Then maybe you should go there type of person who would serve in church, right? I mean, this isn't, do I want the type of friends whose lives are given to Jesus Christ? So where would I find those type of people? Where where am I placing myself? C.S. Lewis in his book, The, The Weight of Glory, has an article, it's a great article, he calls it The Inner Ring. And his whole point essentially is a lot of people's lives, we talk about, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, a lot of people's lives, we, we say, are in danger of those things. But his point is, there's actually this thing, he calls it the inner ring, that happens in every one of our circles. And what he means by that is, we all come to scenarios where there's the they and the we. Somebody draws a ring around us. You're at work. You're new there. Somebody walks up and they say, hey, you know, hey, what's your name? You know, Well, we do this on the weekend. They do that. And what's just happened is the circle's been drawn around you, right? And you now have a, have a decision. I can go with these guys and be part of the we. Or if I don't go with those guys to be a part of the we, then I'm part of the they. And I notice I'm on the outside of the circle then. And to stay on the inside of the circle, there's always a cost. Am I willing to be on the outside of the circle that inner ring. Where do I want to be found? And a lot of people's lives are ruined not because they loved alcohol or drugs or sex, but because they wanted to be in the company that led them to those things because that was the price of being in the we and not on the outside with the they. I might not even like that thing, but to be inside the ring where I gotta be. Paul says evil company corrupts good habits and anybody that is going to walk with him very often the cost is going to be your company. A lot of people are going to hell because of their friends. Not just because they believe bad doctrine or because they're caught up in sin. It's because they can't leave the company. They love the evil company. So what Paul says to this church is, don't be deceived. Don't make that your company. Because evil company will corrupt good habits. Instead, awake to righteousness and do not sin. That word, Awake to righteousness. The Greek has the idea of a drunk waking out of sleep into sobriety. One guy translated it sober up. The The sleep is not the sleep of literally drunkenness. It is a moral sleep. Awake to righteousness, Paul says. Don't sin. Realize where you're sitting right now. If you can sit there and claim that the only apostolic message is false, and you want to be a part of the company that's a part of that, time to wake up. Sober up. Get out of that type of mindset. The Corinthians need to wake up from their drunken sleep of moral sinfulness. And how many of us have had the moment our walk with Christ really begins when we sober up about a moral condition, we realize, Lord, I have been living a total insensitive Christian life to my sin. It's not acceptable in your sight. The prodigal son came to his senses and then went home, the Bible tells us. He woke up in life. There's a moment like, my life is a wreck. I call myself a Christian, and this is not what a Christian is or what a Christian does. This is not the company a Christian keeps. These are not the beliefs a Christian has. And when you wake up in that moment, that's a good thing. That's the mercy of God in your life. Now, you can choose, just like a drunk, to wake up in a sobriety and go back into it. Forget the sobriety that you have in that moment. Or as a believer, you can heed what Paul is calling these believers here to do. In that moment, wake up to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Paul is saying the Corinthians should be ashamed of their behavior in tolerating anyone that would question the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You should be ashamed of that evil company. You should be ashamed of that lifestyle. They should recognize that. And it's a stern warning, but it's a stern warning because the cost is high. Paul's not playing around with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he understands that it's important for these believers' lives. And he understands that if this lie gets stuck in their mind and deceives them, it will lead them into evil, sinful lifestyles. He's going to say something about it. And he's going to hope that they wake up and step on the right path. And if God wakes you up, it's because he loves you and He wants you on the right path. That's why he does this in our lives. Now, 35, he's going to shift the discussion somewhat. He says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? So, some people think here Paul is still addressing that kind of false teacher group who deny the resurrection. I think the tone here shifts enough to say he's anticipating the next level of discussion from sincere inquirers. In Romans he did this a bunch. But some of you will say, some of you will say, we got to remember, Paul went to all these different cities, sat down, preached the gospel, and very often people would sit there and ask questions. So I think he is very used to what the questions are going to be. and I think he's anticipating, okay, we, we believe in the resurrection, so what's the next question then? And the next question for them is, okay, if the resurrection is true, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? So if we die and our bodies disintegrate, people have genuine questions. What will be raised? What's it going to look like? And how do the dead notice? How do they come because the dead are coming back. That was the message. Jesus Christ is going to bring them with him. They're going to be raised up and they're going to come. How are they going to come? Is this a zombie world? Right? Like what's happening here? They literally, they, they wondered. There was genuine questions about that. How does that work? What does that look like? So Paul's going to, I think, genuinely answer those things. And there, I don't, we don't see the same tone of correction. I think he finished that in that section. So now I think he's trying to address sincere believers. So verse 36, what he'll say is, Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow the body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. So now he's going to begin to answer these anticipated questions. He begins by saying, foolish one. Now, that gives the idea of dullness or a senseless objection, more so than an insult. He's not trying to insult them. It's like Jesus on the road to Emmaus telling these guys they were fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had written. It's a, it's a correction. Like, this is, this is a senseless type of objection to the truth. You should not be so slow of heart to believe these things. They should have been quicker to believe the resurrection and the truth of it. But what he's going to do is he's going to point to a very natural thing. Notice foolish one, what you sow is not made alive until it dies. And notice what you sow. He says that twice. Paul says, you hold in your very hand an answer to your own question. Most of them lived in this agricultural society. They would be familiar with sowing. Some of them certainly worked in the market or something, but everybody would be understand what this would understand what this process was. And he'd say, You when you hold that seed that you're gonna sow, you hold in your hand your own answer to this whole process. Says a seed you can sow, it can die in one body, yet still have its life continue. That organic life can collect nutrients emerge after a period of time with another type of more glorious body, a seed. That's just the life in a seed. You're like, how does this body come? How is it a new body? He's like, you take a seed every day. (laughs) You sow the seed. It perishes in the ground. There's still life. The one type of body dies. There's an interval of time. And then another body emerges Don't you sow these things? What do you sow? What happens? If that's what can happen with the life of a seed, seeing that's true, what can happen with the life of God in a human being? Notice the end of the process as he goes through. He says, 37, what you sow, you do not sow the body that shall be. The seed is different than the plant, but the mere grain, perhaps some other grain. But the end of the process, he says, but God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. The corruption of our bodies is a way that God moves the body to its ultimate goal. Our death brings about a place where our body is beyond the power of anybody but God. But here's what he says. God has a personal interaction in resurrection. It's not just a law of nature. It's an act of God. He said God gives that seed the body that he wants. You plant the seed. That seed is a preparatory body, as a preparatory bodily existence until its other bodily existence emerges, which is determined by God Almighty. That's what's going to happen to you. That's what's going to happen to me. You presently have a preparatory bodily existence. And when that breaks down, the life continues. But God is going to give you a body as he pleases. He's involved. He's involved with every plant, every blade of grass that grows in the field that we walk on or drive by. He's involved in every human life. And he knows exactly what he's doing. There's a personal touch and intelligence behind our resurrection. He continues and gives these examples. He says, look, all flesh is not the same flesh. Again, what what type of body is this person going to have, they're asking? He says, all flesh is not the same flesh. There's this incredible variety. There's one kind of flesh of men another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, bodies of the heavens and the earth. He says, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. Paul's whole point here is, hey, look, there are a whole bunch of types of different bodily existence in the natural world, and every body differs in glory and is properly fitted for its environment. Fish have a different type of body, and there's all different types of fish body, but they're all properly fitted for the water, birds for the air, animals for the land. The types of bodies on earth are different than the types of bodies God threw in the heavens, and they have a a different type of existence and a different type of glory. And God has... Fitted everything with its proper body for its existence. And now he's carrying that argument over. Verse 42 So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Here, Paul says, in that same way, the resurrection of our body is similar. Our present earthly bodies are sown as a seed is sown. There's continuity to what is raised. Notice Paul says, it is sown... It is raised. It's the same thing. The body is sown. The body is raised. It, it. There's continuity between it, but something different is happening. So 42, he says, our bodies are sown in corruption. They are breaking down. We are all corrupting in various ways. You have weird corruption that you go to the doctor for, and I have weird corruption that I go to the doctor for. Right? Every, every body that we have, doesn't matter how they look or how good you feel it is, some weird You're like, I didn't even know that was a type of corruption. That can happen to this body, right? And it happens. And then what happens is, eventually, our bodies are going to be sown in corruption. Wait a minute. We don't die incorruptible. We want that. (laughs) But what he says is, no, this present body, it is going to be corrupted. It is going to break down in various ways. That is how it will be sown. And we can either fear that or we can recognize that. We can try to deny it or we can realize that is what happens with this body. It is sown in corruption, but what also happens is it is raised in incorruption. The body, the life that continues, that receives this new body that pleases the Lord is incorruptible. There is no more breaking down. Nothing getting worse. Your eyes aren't getting worse. Your knees aren't getting worse. Right? Your health isn't getting worse. There's no, it can't be corrupted. It is incorruptible. That's, that's what is raised. What is sown is different. What is raised is incorruption. Verse 43, he, he builds on this. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Our bodies are sown in dishonor. When, when they're sown, they are dishonorable. You know, however honorable people love their bodies, certainly, again, social media, TV, that all, people love their bodies. And how dare you shame anybody's body ever, right? We love our human sexuality. But guess what? They all end up dishonorable. We have to bury them and move them out of sight because of the corruption. A life can be honorable. The outer man is perishing. The inner man, the Bible says, can be renewed day by day. Who you are should get sweeter and better. That life, because that life continues. But the body, that breaks down. And it ends up in dishonor. And it happens to all of us. And they're, you know, everybody's dishonorable in their own way. I don't know if you ever think this, but... You know, everybody wakes up in the morning. They're not at their best when they're first awake, right? Our hairs are messed up. Nobody's brushed their teeth yet. Blowing your nose. You feel weird. And I was like, and this is my thought. I don't know if you ever thought this. Like, Lord, this is, that's when I meet with God in the morning, you know? You get a cup of summer or whatever. I'm like, God, nobody else would want to be around me right now. <laughs> but like, you actually do. To me, that's just remark. That thought comes to my mind a lot. Because we're dishonorable. These bodies are going to be sown in dishonor. Shame comes in one way or another. to all of us. We're humbled. They are raised, though. That's how it's sown. They are raised in glory. What that's like, I'm not sure. It's pretty good, though. Because Moses hung out in a dishonorable body with God for 40 days. And his face was shining so bright they had to cover it up. So I don't know what we're going to look like after we hang out with God in a new body for 40,000 years. (laughs) It's going to be better. It's going to be glorious. They're sown in dishonor. They are raised in glory. Our bodies are sown in weakness. Weakness. What happens with these bodies? They're born in weakness. They enter into the world in weakness. They grow. They receive strength. They mature. But then they begin to turn weak again. And when they are sown, again, perished, put in the ground like a seed, they're sown in weakness. That's how it happens. We lack the ability to do. We know we should do. But we begin to lack that ability. We no longer have the strength. It's a difficult thing. There's a challenge in learning to give your life to God and your strength to God. We're tempted to give our life and strength to other things. But even when we figure out how to give our life and strength to God, and some people begin to do that faithfully, we can begin to have a hard time when God asks for it back. Because we're only stewards of it for so long when he says, okay, now give me back your strength. We enter into this world, and before we get on the hustle and bustle and craziness of it, God gives us a little preparatory time to grow up and mature. And then before he sends us to the next world, he begins to give us a little weakness, a little preparatory time to mature in different ways were sown in weakness, but they are raised, he says, in power. No more weakness, no more lack. The ability to do then, to push, to test. Right? When you're young, you don't think you can hurt your body. You push it, you test it, You go to the limits. Where you get older, you're like, if I hurt myself, I just stay hurt. So I'm not testing anything. I'm just trying to survive. So we, we sow in weakness, but we're raised in power. He says, our bodies are sown, 44, a natural body, but it will be raised a spiritual body. This is Paul's building now. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. He's going to explain it. It doesn't mean that when our bodies are raised that they will be raised immaterial or ghostly, when he says a spiritual body and a natural body. It's not a description of what the body is made of, per se. It's a description of what the body is driven by. Right? If I said you have a water bottle or a coffee mug, your bottle's not made of water. It contains it. <laughs> I said, do you drive a gas or electric car? I'm not thinking your car is made of gas or electricity. It is the power that runs the thing. So if I say, do you have a natural or a spiritual body, the point is, it's not that the spiritual body is totally immaterial. It's what runs the thing. What's the power behind it? What is the defining force in it? There is a natural body which is adapted to the type of life in this world. It is the life that you and I have been given. It is also a life that corrupts, becomes dishonorable and weak. And it's a life that is sown. And then Paul says what is raised is a spiritual body. And that spiritual body is adapted to a higher form of life and a different type of environment. And that spiritual body, it's incorruptible. It's powerful glorious. Paul would say in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. Very much a similar context here. Jesus Christ who has all power is going to subdue also All the weakness, all the corruption, all the dishonor in these bodies, and then make us one like his. That's what our hope is. So Paul, continuing here to make that clear, says in 45, So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. So what you see in this earthly realm is the same thing that's going to happen with us. For the first man, verse 47, was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of of the heavenly man. Here, Paul is making it clear that our starting point was Adam, but our ending point is Jesus. The starting point for all of us is Adam. That's where we received our life, but it was a natural life. Adam was created from the dust, and it says that God breathed into Adam and he became a living being. He received life from outside of him. But Jesus. He doesn't need to receive life from anybody he is a life-giving spirit we don't we don't go back to sometimes this is confusing when people talk about resurrection in heaven we're not going back to the garden of eden and we're not going back to adam's innocence we are going to be as high above adam as jesus is above adam when we look at what our future is this first man He was the first one. He received life, but he passed on sinful life. The last Adam, Jesus is called here, because he's the one who possesses and gives eternal life. Our ending state is much higher than Adam's beginning state. Our ending state in Jesus Christ is much higher than the way Adam started. You and I are not going to have the ability to mess up. You and I aren't going to get into heaven and blow it a day in. Like, I shouldn't have eaten this? You know, like, oh. (laughs) No, all that's over. Adam was the correct starting point to get to God's end point. But what he says is, Adam's where you started. He He was the seed. set it all up for you. But Jesus is where you end This is is what you're being conformed into. This is where we received our life, but we're going forward to Jesus' perfect spiritual resurrection life. So all of our thoughts and our theology about the resurrection, we don't look back to Adam. We look ahead to Jesus. Our body is being conformed into his, not Adam's. So, Jesus is, that's why he says in the context, verse 45, the last Adam, because after him and in him, humanity reaches its highest point. There's no other options. At that point, you're incorruptible. Can't be defiled. You have life that never fades away. In Christ, there's no loss, no change, no other option. Humanity reaches its perfection in Christ. Adam was the best place to start. Paul contrasts the origins here. The seed, the natural body, is what came first. The plant or the spiritual body is what comes after. The life that Christ offers to us comes from a much different source. He says that first man was of the earth, earthy, made of the dust. The second man, he was the Lord from heaven. These are not, these are not the same beginnings, Right? Adam was made out of the dust of the earth. He had life given to him. Jesus Christ was the Lord from heaven who took on human flesh. This one is much higher than the other, Paul's saying. Jesus would say in John three thirteen, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. Again, John eight twenty three he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. He had a different type of life that he was extending. And Paul here is giving us this hope. Because what he's saying is, verse 48, As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. So Adam was made of dust, and you and I are made that way. And we all face the same corruption. Genesis 5.3 says... Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image named Seth. And that's been going on since then. Humanity just makes more humanity, except we're seeds that perish. These bodies are all failing. They all face corruption. They all face dishonor. They all face weakness. And they're all sown and perishing eventually. But in Christ... Just as true that you and I first carry Adam's life in the resurrection, we then bear his image. Just like we bore the first, we will guaranteed bear the second. That's what Paul's saying to them. The resurrected life of our ascended Savior. Verse 49, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the Of the heavenly man. He is the bright original. We become lesser copies. But we get to be made like him, incorruptible, undefiled, powerful, glorious. We're going to carry that same image, he says. He stepped beyond the grave and showed us what it would be Notice as he moves on here. Now, verse 50. This I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. I think that was part of their problem and their confusion. Again, how can a body that is dead and decomposed rise again, and how can that inherit incorruption? They, they couldn't understand how that change could kind of happen. And Paul here makes it clear Flesh and blood is not what's risen. Flesh and blood is simply a description of what this life can provide. Jesus would say to Simon, Blessed are thou, Simon bar Jennifer, for flesh and blood has not revealed these things to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. His whole point was, you couldn't have gotten this from any earthly realm. The teaching was supernatural that you received, that you can say, I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was from my Father, which is in heaven. And what Paul's saying is, this type of flesh and blood, that doesn't, that's not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't again mean that our eternal existence is immaterial. In fact, the Bible is clear Luke 24, 30, Ephesians five thirty. Jesus said, Aren't I flesh and, blo- and bone? Come touch me. Right? He ate stuff in front of them and it didn't fall through the back of them. I love it. He's, in John 21, it tells us he's sitting on the shore cooking fish over coals. Number one, it's like Jesus. Probably make good fish, right? Like you can't mess it up. Number two, he's living a materialist sitting there having breakfast with him, the resurrected Jesus Christ, cooking and eating breakfast. Also, like meat, fish is meat, so it's not a sin to eat meat in a resurrected body. That gives me hope. So, <clears throat> the, the point here is, is not that, okay, flesh and blood can't have any type of material existence in heaven. That's not what he's saying. What he's simply saying is, yes, this type of life, if that's what you're running on, that's all you got. That cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That has to change. There has to be something different that happens there. Interestingly enough, what Paul's essentially saying is whether you're living or dead, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. (laughs) If if your body is separated from you and sown, Man is supposed to be body and soul. If you're living, but you're just flesh and blood, you're not ready for the kingdom of God. If you're dead, you don't have a new resurrected body, you're not ready for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God needs to be a new resurrected body that God wants you to live in that is perfectly fitted for that environment. So, what he says is, Paul says, I'm going to tell you how this gets solved. Behold, I tell you in verse 51, in mystery, we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. My dad said they used to have that on the nursery in the old building. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's not good interpretation, but it is funny. So behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So Paul, here he says, okay, there's a mystery, a mystery being not something that's not known, something that is known, but couldn't have been known by flesh and blood. Only God could reveal this to us. And he says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. You're right, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, but God revealed something to us that we're all going to be changed. And that some are not going to be sown as most are. That there will be those who are living that will also be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, without having been sown, the same change will happen to them. They will be conformed to the same image and heavenly man that I've been talking about. Now... It will happen, he says, that the last trump, there's a lot of unnecessary end times discussion around that phrase. Most of it battles around does the last trump literally have to be the very last trumpet that will ever be sounded? And there are some millennial, mostly modern uh, interpreters that really like to hold to that, which would then change various things. But the The simple idea here is he's just saying the last trump for this particular people, the we, Paul, notice, uses the word we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He's talking about believers. And it doesn't have to be when he says the last trump, the literal last trumpet that will ever blow, as if there's never going to be a trumpet that blows in the new heavens or new earth or later in Revelation, or it's literally like me saying hey, you're the last guy on the elevator. It doesn't mean nobody's ever going to use the elevator again. <laughs> we all understand it means just that group of people that I'm talking to. right? When we, said, when, we, when we say Jesus breathed his last on the cross, it doesn't mean Jesus never lived and breathed. We, it's very important that Jesus lived and breathed again. right? The Last Supper was not literally the last supper Jesus ever had because we see him eating again. And he talks about how he can't wait to sup with us in the marriage supper of the land. so sometimes people really work to make language say something it doesn't say. It just means this is the last trump for the we, the particular people that Paul is talking about, those especially that he mentions in 1 Thessalonians 4 when the rapture happens and the trump of God is blown and the we, the Bible tells us, are caught up together with those who have already died and received our resurrected bodies. We want to talk more about that we could talk afterwards but the point here what paul's speaking about that he wants them to understand is this section this this struggle they had where but how can a, a person whose flesh and blood be raised up again and then inherit the kingdom of god he says no you're going to receive a new body it's going to be fitted for your environment look around the world around you this is how god does it Look at how a seed is sown and then how new life emerges. And there is going to be a mystery. There is a group who in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, will be changed. Changed into his likeness. And the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Verse 53, 4. This corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality because we can't inherit the kingdom of God otherwise. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Paul brings the whole thing back again. Resurrection must happen. This is how the Bible tells us it's going to happen. You should see examples of this. And I, I love that he, he uses this word here, especially there in verse 53. For this corruptible must, that's my favorite word in the verse there, must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. In this life, Paul often taught the church, as we know from the book of Acts, that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. That's a difficult must. Because it is tribulation. Not only to follow Christ in this world, where the wind was against him, and he said it would be against us. But it's tribulation and difficulty to have a seed that is weak and dishonorable, and corruptible, and will be sown that way. But there is something else that must happen after the first must happens. We must go through much tribulation, but we must also put on incorruption. Heaven has such wonderful musts to it. The things that I have to do, I must be raised incorruptible, immortal, glorious, powerful, and heavenly. I must join the society of an innumerable company of angels, the entire church of the firstborn, and the spirits of just men made perfect. I must receive and reap a harvest for all my labor and prayer and service to him. I must rest from my toil and my hardship in my dwelling place in the new Jerusalem. I must eat of the tree of life and drink from the crystal river of water of life. I must serve my God for all eternity in joy and light and power. And I must see God face to face. When I get to heaven, I don't have any choices. I must do all those things And why Why must this corruption put on incorruption and this mortal put on immortality? Because of what Christ has done. Because there's a saying. There are things that are written in the scripture that must be brought to pass because God's honor and God's word and God's character depend on it. He quotes here from Isaiah 25 and Hosea 13.4. But Paul says, when will that saying be brought to pass the death past that death is swallowed up in victory? Death where is your sting? Hades where is your victory? When when is that all gonna happen? Here's when it'll happen. When you and I are standing there in immortality, then we're gonna know death has no victory. When you are raised incorruptible, Glorious and powerful, and you're standing there and you know that you are beyond death. You're beyond it. You're going to be feeling good right then. And you will know this saying is true. Right now, we question it. You want to know why? You're not feeling incorruptible right now. You will. You must if you're in Christ. We will, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we will be beyond it. Death will have no power, no sting without sin or the law. Sin obviously brings about death. The law obviously forces us to see our own sin. It brings us into a position where we have to recognize Those things, Paul says in 56, the sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who gives us the victory. You notice that? This is all a gift because of the victory in Jesus Christ. Jesus gives these things as a gift. We don't deserve them. What a gift this is. You could take all your problems, everything you feel is difficult about this life, all the tribulation you must go through to enter in the kingdom of God, and then you put resurrection on the other side. It's a gift. It takes up all those problems, and it's a bigger answer. It is the only answer in life, I'll put this for you. Uh, Peter Kreeft, he's um, actually a Catholic kind of philosopher, born again. Some of the things he talks about I wouldn't necessarily agree with. But speaking about resurrection, he he put this very well. He says the human race has come up with five basic answers to the question in terms of what happens after we die. And God has come up with the six. He says God is always coming up with odd things like planets, people, and platypuses. He is the great iconoclast, which is a C.S. Lewis saying. First, he says, "You either be- here's what you have to believe. Annihilation. We all die and go to nothing. Death ends it all except our reputation, our works, and our children, which live on after us. But we know and enjoy nothing of them if we're annihilated forever. We survive death, but only as ghosts. We become pale shadows of the living cells we once were. Reincarnation. We come back to earth in another mortal body. These are the only things humanity's ever come up with. Number four, natural immortality of the soul. Each individual's disembodied spirit, liberated by death, survives as a pure spirit like an angel. This spirit has been imprisoned in an alien thing, a body that holds it back until it is released forever by death. Or the only thing that survives death is the only thing that was real before death. Cosmic consciousness, the one, Atman, the Buddha mind, perfect, eternal, trans-individual spirit. That's all humanity is. You want to laugh at the resurrection? Here are your other options. Okay, I just want us to see. This is what Christianity offers something unique here. That's why he says, only in Christianity do we become more than we were before death. It is the startling, surprising idea of a new, greater resurrected body. It's almost like God made it up. Like he had a great plan the whole time that he was working toward. Paul just says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. This, this can only come as a gift from God by his own power. There's no other way... That this could ever come to us and there's no other hope that we can have in life. You can laugh at what Christianity offers people. It's always one thing to laugh at what Christianity offers. It's something else to go find a better idea out there. God is never afraid of the truth. He's never afraid of the truth. And the hope that you and I have is clear and remarkable. And Paul just finishes saying, because he can never allow a doctrinal lesson to go without application. Therefore, and maybe he's bringing the whole book into what, this at this point, but I think certainly a culmination of what he's just said. My beloved brethren, be steadfast. That word's only used three times in scripture here earlier in the book in 737 and Colossians 123. The steadfastness seems to be a reference to inner steadfastness, holding to your face, steadfastness in your heart. Be steadfast, be immovable. That word only used here. And it seems to be literal, like physical, immovable nature. Don't let anybody push you off this. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is true. And if the resurrection is true, then everything that comes to us in our life, every phase of life with all its challenges and all its difficulties all the tribulation we must go through to enter into the kingdom of God. Still all worth it. And it all now has meaning. Because if I'm just going to nothing, my life has no meaning. But we're not. We're selling something. And there's going to be a harvest. And so the whole world is going to be working against me to push me off of this target off of this reality, off of this hope, off of this mindset. Evil company is going to lie and deceive to try to get me to live as if this is not true. Well, Paul says, wake up. This is the hope that you have. It's the only hope that's ever been preached. It's the only hope that's ever been found. There is nothing like it on the face of the earth. It is what is true about humanity. It fits most with reality, and it's also greater than any fairy tale story you could ever make up. Because God made it up, and it's a gift in Jesus Christ. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. Certainly, Lord, I know there's no way I can talk about these things. <laughs> and make them a portion as great as they really are. But I do know that your Holy Spirit can take the things that are yours and give them their proper weight and truth and life in our hearts and in our lives. And I pray that you would do that for us, Lord Jesus. Pray for those who are here that maybe have recently lost a loved one that you would allow this to be a great hope for them pray for those that are here lord that are feeling that seed this being sown and the perishing and corruptible nature of it pray you give them grace to see your hand and your work in their lives and i pray lord jesus for any of us who are walking with you and want to live for you but are feeling that temptation come to be moved away from these things to turn our hearts and lives to something that are just our own where we eat and drink and have fun try not to think about tomorrow when we die pray that your life and resurrection will keep us on track Give us great hope in you. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your word. We would be lost, Lord, without it, without an anchor for our souls. But you are good, and you've given us what we need, and we praise you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.